Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. The passage we'll be looking at this morning will be in verses 12 down through verse 19. And I will read beginning at verse 12, down through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. And Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, When there is no law, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are two great realities in the world in which we live. And we see them all around us. No one can deny them. And those two realities are sin, human sin, and death. We see it in the news, in the violence, the hatred, the wars that take place, the injustices and the wrongs of this present world. We see it all in the crimes, in the greed, in the boastful pride of men and their selfishness. And we see it, the terrible reality of death, that no one can escape it. And men, by nature, live all of their lives in the fear of death. But the question is, how did this world come to be this way? And why is sin and death universal? This is the question that Paul answers in this passage here in Romans chapter 5. He has been showing in the previous chapters that the whole human race, Jew and Gentile, 
are all under sin, under the guilt and under the power of sin. But here, what Paul does is he lifts the veil and he shows us what lies behind all of this, where it all started and how the world came to be this way. And his great purpose here ultimately is to show to us the remedy, the way of deliverance through the great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us here that there are two great figures in human history. There are two men who stand above all others in their influence on the entire human race. And those two men are Adam, the first man, and Jesus Christ, the Savior. Adam and Christ are what are called in theology two federal heads, two representatives of the human race before God. There are only two men. There are only two men who represent all the rest of us. The first man, Adam, the second man, Christ, or as Paul sometimes calls them the first Adam and the last Adam. Two representatives and all of us are united to them, to one or the other, so that what each of them did is passed on to those they represent before God. Adam and Christ are not private individuals. They are public figures and they pass down from them everything that they have by the union of those who are united to them. We are all born by nature in union with Adam so that everything that belongs to Adam is passed on to us. But then only by faith we come into union with Christ so that everything that belongs to Christ is passed on to us as well. This is what we call imputation. The imputation the reckoning, the accounting of what Adam has, the imputation, the reckoning, the accounting of what Christ has to all who are in union with them. Paul speaks at times of being in Adam, in union with him, in Christ, in union with Christ. This is the way God has constituted the entire human race. By birth into this world, we are in union with Adam and everything that belongs to him. By faith, we are in union with Christ and everything that belongs to him. People often do not like this idea that someone else, what someone else has done is accounted to me or passed on to me. We think of ourselves as autonomous individuals. We like to think of ourselves as free and independent people from all others and we stand by ourselves alone and no one, no one outside of us has any real influence upon us. That's the way we like to think of ourselves as individuals. But it is really not true. And we already recognize this in at least in a physical sense. The physical characteristics of our parents are passed on to us and to succeeding generations. If our parents were born if our parents were of a certain ethnicity, then we are born with that same ethnicity. 
We often say of children how they look like their parents. They have the same eyes, the same hair color, the same facial features. If the parents are tall, then the children tend to be tall as well. And scientists, they recognize that parts of the genetic code in the DNA are even passed down from parents to children. So children, so the children often are prone to the very same diseases. So we already know in the physical sense that we are not autonomous and independent individuals as we like to think we are. What, what Paul is telling us here in this passage is that our connection to those who have come, gone before us, our connection to them is much deeper than just physical outward characteristics, skin deep. What Paul is telling us here is that our very nature our relationship before God and the very nature of what we are in our souls is connected to one of these two men. Who we are and what has happened to us can be traced back to either Adam or to Christ. And God, the creator of all men, who has formed us, he has the right to tell us who we are and how we have come to be who we are. And when he speaks in that way, then we should listen and we must submit our minds to his revelation. And that's what he is doing for us here. He is pulling the veil and he is showing us how the world has become what it is. We are all united to either Adam or Christ by birth in Adam, by faith, in Christ. And so there is this parallel that runs down through verses 15 through 19 between Adam and Christ. And the pattern through these verses is that the first half of each verse tells us what Adam has done and given to us, and the second half tells us what Christ has done and has given to us. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he put it this way. In God's sight, there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging at their girdle strings, hanging from their garments, is what he meant. And we know what each of them did. Adam fell in the Garden of Eden and brought ruin on all of his natural descendants. Christ accomplished salvation and he brought blessings upon all of his spiritual descendants. And this is our subject this morning. And what we want to do here is see the contrast between Adam and Christ. The contrast could not be greater. I have, I have four contrasts in mind. But this morning, I have only time for the first. And then this evening, Lord willing, the second and Lord willing, we'll do the other two next Lord's Day. But the first contrast between Adam and Christ, what we have in Adam, what we are given also in Christ, is, is that in Adam, in Adam we have guilt, and in Christ we have righteousness. In Adam, guilt, in Christ, righteousness that leads to justification. Adam and Eve, they were made innocent and upright, in the Garden of Eden, they were the perfect image bearers of God with holiness. 
God created them on the sixth day, and then he said in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything in the entire universe was very good, and the Lord was well pleased. It was perfect and holy and without any sin or stain, especially the man or the, and the woman made in the image of God. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29, he says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. This is how it was in the beginning. Adam was made holy, innocent, and very good in the sight of God. But then we know what happened. He rebelled. He was in that most beautiful garden, that luscious garden of Eden. And in great generosity, God gave to Adam every, every tree of the garden. God said, you may eat freely from every tree of the garden, except for the one tree, except for that one tree, that only that one tree that was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so momentous would have been his rebellion against the generous God, so catastrophic would have been his sin that God instituted the penalty of death upon it. And he said, in the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. The crime of Adam's disobedience was so vast that the penalty of death was attached to it. In the day that you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. Adam ate, he became guilty. He came under the judgment, the condemnation of God, and because he was the representative of the whole human race and all of his descendants were in union with him, as soon as Adam ate, as soon as Adam ate, the guilt and the condemnation of his sin was immediately imputed, accounted to all of his posterity so that we all came under the guilt and the condemnation of Adam. Adam was the head of the whole human family and we were all in solidarity with him and we all sinned when he sinned and we all sinned in him, in union with him, which is how God has constituted the human race. And the proof of his guilt the proof of his guilt being imputed to all of his posterity is seen in the penalty falling, the penalty of death coming upon all of his posterity. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin Death came through sin. The penalty of death is sin. So death, he says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why did death spread to all men? Because all sinned. But the question is, what does he mean? 
when he says, because all sinned. He does not speak here of actual sins that men commit. He will speak in Romans chapter 6 about the actual sins of men, which are worthy of death in themselves. But what he refers to here is what we call the imputation of Adam's guilt to all men. And we all sinned in union with Adam, and that will become clear as we proceed. What is taking place here in verse 12 is two things. There are two things happening in verse 12. There is a crime and there is a penalty. The crime is the one sin, the one sin of the one man, Adam, when he ate from the forbidden tree and the penalty is death, a penalty which came upon all men universally. So here is what is happening in verse 12. There is one act of sin. There is only one sin. But the penalty, the penalty is passed upon the entire human race. And we know that there was perfect justice in this because God is the judge here and he is a perfect and righteous judge. So we ask the question, how was the penalty inflicted upon all men. He tells us at the end of the verse, so death spread to all men. Death reigned. How did this come about? He tells us at the end of the verse, because all sinned, because all sinned in union with Adam in that one act of his rebellion in the garden. The penalty of death is the proof that we were all united to Adam in his sin and guilt. This is the argument of the apostle now through the rest of the passage that by the one sin of Adam comes guilt, condemnation, and death upon all men because we were all united to him in his first sin. And now this becomes the theme. And Paul now in verses 15 down through verse 19 what we see is he speaks continually of the one man, the one man with the one sin, and then the judgment, the condemnation being passed, the death being passed upon all men from him. We see this in the beginning of verse 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if the transgression of the one if the transgression, if by the transgression of the one, the many died. So there we have it, the transgression of the one man, Adam, the one sin in the Garden of Eden. That transgression, the guilt of it was now imputed, charged to all of his descendants so that the many died. If we look down to verse 16, he says, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, the one man. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, just one transgression resulting in condemnation. He means condemnation upon all of Adam's descendants. 
we look down to verse 17. He says, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So death here reigned over all men. Through the transgression of the one man, Adam, there was only one transgression of Adam in the garden, and the penalty of death came upon all men through the one. Again in verse 18, so then, through the one transgression, one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, universal. And then again in verse 19, so as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, accounted sinners in the sight of God. So this is the theme down throughout this passage that in each verse, Paul speaks only of one sin, one transgression. And from that one sin came judgment and condemnation and death upon all men. And how could that be? The only explanation is that all men sinned with Adam in that one sin of the Garden of Eden. And his guilt was passed on to all of us. So back in verse 12, at the end of verse 12, when he says, so death spread to all men for all sinned. He means death spread to them all because all sinned in union with Adam in his transgression, in his one transgression in the garden. This is the terrible reality that has come upon the world in which we live. It is the explanation of the human condition that we are all born under the guilt, the condemnation, and the death that comes from Adam from the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb. The sin of Adam, the sin of Adam was so momentous. It was a catastrophic transgression which brought judgment, condemnation, death upon all the human race a cosmic sin that destroyed the entire human race. When Adam ate from that tree in the garden, what happened was the gavel came down upon all, upon Adam and all of his descendants as Adam was the head, the representative of all of us who were in union with him. And the gavel was guilty. The gavel was condemned to death before we even came into the world. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us here in this passage. But his purpose, his purpose in explaining the human condition to us that has come to us from Adam is really only to show us the glory of Christ and what he has done and what Jesus Christ has accomplished, because there is a parallel between Adam and Christ. And just as what Adam did is imputed to all united to him, so what Christ has accomplished is imputed, accounted to all of us who are in union with him by faith. We see it is called a gift here because it is freely given to all who believe. It is the free gift of righteousness which results in our justification. Adam brought guilt and condemnation to all. Christ now 
brings righteousness and justification to all who believe. We can see this now as we look at the, at the middle of verse 15. You see the words, much more. That's where he begins to speak of Christ. Much more, he says, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So here, once again, there is one man. And from that one man who is Jesus Christ, now there is grace that abounds to the many who are in him. And how is it given to us? It is given by grace. Two times he mentions the grace of God and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. It is a gift that is given to us. He calls it a gift. The gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. And we notice those words here much more, he says. And then at the end, he says, it abound, it abounded, it abounds to the many. A comparison between what Adam has given to us compared to what Christ has given to us. The grace and the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ is much more. It is much more abounding beyond anything, any guilt, any condemnation that Adam has brought upon us. Whatever Adam did, Christ has brought much more of his grace and his blessings upon us. The grace of Jesus is far more than the guilt of Adam. The grace of Jesus exceeds our sin and the sin of Adam as well. Beginning in verse 16, he calls it a gift and the gift, he says. And then if we look toward the end of verse 16, he says, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And in verse 17, he says, for, by, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So we see those words again, much more and the abundance of grace. However great the guilt and the condemnation of Adam, there is an exceeding and abundantly greater grace given to us in the blessings of the righteousness and everything that comes to us from our Lord Jesus. We look in the middle of verse 18. He says, even so through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men, meaning to all who believe. The one act of righteousness is the whole life of the righteousness of Christ. Everything throughout his entire life and death upon the cross. One man, one act of righteousness, and from that one act flows justification and eternal life to all in union with him. Then we see again at the end of verse 19, he says, Even so through the obedience of the one, the one man, the many, the many who are in union with him by faith, the many will be made righteous, accounted righteous in the sight of God. The obedience of the one, the righteousness of Christ, freely given to those who believe, so that we are justified by his righteousness. So there is this parallel between Adam and Christ in this passage. In Adam, there is guilt and condemnation 
upon all who are born into the world, but in Christ there is righteousness and justification by his perfect obedience. The apostle's purpose in the passage is to show us the glory of Jesus and what he has done against the dark, the very dark backdrop, backdrop of what Adam has done and all that he has brought into the world. One man compares it to a bridegroom when he goes to the jeweler to purchase a diamond for his bride at the wedding day. And he goes to the jeweler, and the first thing the jeweler does is he places a black velvet cloth on the glass, and then he places the diamond in the middle of the black background, and it is done to show the sparkling beauty of the diamond against that background. And that's what Paul is doing here in this passage. He, he lays out the black, the very dark background of what Adam has done and all the guilt, the condemnation, the death that has come from him. So now he places the glory of Christ in the midst of what Christ has done and the righteousness that he has accomplished and the justification and the eternal life and the blessings that he has brought to all who believe in him. That's what all of these expressions down through this passage mean. Much more, the abundance of grace. There is much more in Christ, in his righteousness, in his blessings, than there is guilt and condemnation in Adam. There is nothing more pleasing in the sight of God, the Father in heaven, than the perfect righteousness and the perfect obedience of his beloved son. There is no greater accomplishment throughout all eternity. There is nothing more lovely, more beautiful. There is nothing more magnificent and wonderful in the sight of God the Father than the perfect righteousness of his beloved son, his atoning death upon the cross to take away all sin. There is a glory that shines from all that Jesus has accomplished so that there is nothing in all eternity that will be more pleasing to the Father than his beloved Son. Behold, he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well pleased in time and then into eternity. There will never be any loss of the beauty and the glory of the righteousness of Christ. The Father's law was perfectly upheld in his life and in his death upon the cross. The Father's law was glorified in every possible way by his perfect obedience. There was not a single stain of any sin found in Jesus' life. There was no blemish, no corruption of any such kind. There was only perfect righteousness and holiness that pleased the Father. And the Father was so pleased with Jesus that he raised him from the dead. 
He exalted him into heaven. He said, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And there at the right hand of God sits Jesus in all the brightness and the dazzling beauty of his perfect righteousness and holiness. The angels of heaven cannot even look upon him because his righteousness and his holiness is so bright they must cover their eyes. But the marvelous thing is that God the Father has taken the perfect righteousness of his beloved Son and he has freely given it to us who are sinners so that we might take off the robes that Adam has given us that are covered in guilt that will bring us down into condemnation and we may put on, he puts on to us the garments of righteousness so that we are perfect in holiness and righteousness before him forever. This morning, if we believe in the gospel, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are as righteous in the sight of God the Father as Christ himself is righteous in his sight forever. And it is the gift of righteousness to us and we are justified and we shall remain justified forever. The highest judge of all the universe has brought down his gavel upon us. And if God justifies us, then who can stand against us? We are clothed in his perfect and most beautiful righteousness. And by his righteousness, all the glories of the kingdom of God begin to flow down upon us. This is why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in our union with him, and all the blessings begin to flow upon us. And Paul goes on in that great chapter to explain all of those things. If Adam had continued in his obedience in what is called the time of his probation and then been brought into an eternal state, he could have never brought us into an eternal state that was of anything compared to what Christ has done for us in his perfect righteousness. The blessings we gain in Jesus are far and eternally greater than anything that we could ever gain through Adam. It is not that Jesus just brings us back to a point of equilibrium so that we are at what we were in the garden with Adam. No, he brings us to a far higher state of glory. In Adam, we lost everything. In Christ, we gain everything. And even all of the unsearchable riches of Christ forever. The Bible speaks of this as a robe, taking off that filthy robe of guilt and condemnation, putting on the beautiful and lovely garments of Christ. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 10, 
The prophet says, My soul will exalt in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What beautiful jewels are upon us in this garment of righteousness that God has freely given to us as sinners. John can tell us in the book of Revelation that before the throne there was a great multitude. They were clothed in white robes. And the elder said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In this passage in Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5 and verses 15 down through verse 19, there is nothing here about what we have done. There is nothing. There is nothing here about what we have done. There is only about what the two great representatives have done, only about what Adam has done and what Christ has done and what comes down from them to us. In the family of the first man, Adam, we have guilt, condemnation, and death. But in the family of the second man, Jesus Christ, we have righteousness, justification, and eternal life. Some do not like the idea of this imputation, is what it's called especially when they consider the guilt of Adam being passed on to all of us, being imputed to us. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that if one objects to the imputation of Adam, then he must also reject the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us as well because they both stand or fall together, as is so clear throughout the passage. This is really what the gospel is all about. That first, what Adam has done to us brought us into this terrible predicament that we are in. As Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And Paul has argued in the previous chapters that we are all under sin. There is none who is good. There is none who is righteous. But here comes the good news of Jesus, that God has made a provision for us a provision of righteousness that we need to stand before him. And God has freely given that gift of righteousness to us that we may stand before him and be justified, fully acceptable in his sight. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And then in Romans chapter 4, Paul goes on to argue that this imputation of righteousness has always been God's way of salvation in the Old Testament with Abraham and then with David as well. What does the scripture say? It was imputed. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him. So it is the same way of salvation from the very beginning. So having seen the context now of verses 15 through 19, bear with me now 
because we go back to see what verses 13 and 14 are about. And there's a little difficulty in some of the language here. We see at the end of verse 12, he says, So death spread to all men, because all sinned. And we have argued from the succeeding context, he means all sinned in their union with Adam. Now we come to verse 13 and 14. He says, For until the law, sin was in the world. He means until the time of the law that came through Moses, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So the general thought of the apostle here is he is thinking, why did all men die from the time of Adam until the time of Moses? Did they die because of their actual, their individual transgressions? No, because during that period of time, there was no law given by which to measure their transgressions. And when there is no law, there is no sin imputed. Sin cannot be charged and men cannot be found guilty when there is no law. This is what he means now in verse 13. He says, for until the law, until the time the law was given to Moses, from Adam until Moses, sin was in the world. Yes, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. He states a general principle, but then he very quickly, immediately recognizes in verse 14 that death reigned over all men from the time of Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned like Adam. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So the question is, how could death reign over all of them? No one, no one in that time period had sinned to the same degree as Adam. No one had such a high-handed rebellion, a sin of such great magnitude as Adam. Nevertheless, the penalty of Adam's sin was still charged upon all of them. How could this be? And the answer is, the only explanation, is that all men sinned in Adam when he sinned. And that's what he means at the end of verse 12. So death spread to all men because all sinned. All were in solidarity with him. And so what he is saying here must be understood in a way that is consistent with the context and the rest of what Paul says from verses 15 through 19. That every man from Adam until Moses died because of their union. And all men die because of their union with the sin of Adam. Paul knew that every individual man had his own transgressions. He was well aware of that. And every individual sin is worthy of condemnation. But that Paul is not dealing with that subject here. He will deal with that in chapter 6, the actual sins of men. The only view of sin that he is speaking of here is the one sin of Adam imputed to all in union with him, 
which is clear throughout the rest of the passage. Now we may, we may remember and we may think of this in this way. We go back to Genesis chapter 2. And God said to Adam, in the day that you eat from the tree, you shall surely die. Now at that point in Genesis chapter 2, we do not know how far reaching that penalty of death will be. We might even think it only belongs to Adam. But then what happens is we go to Genesis chapter 5. And what do we find in Genesis chapter 5? That continual refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. And what we discover now is that the penalty, the penalty from Genesis chapter 2, it has been passed on to the whole human race. And how do we explain this? This is what the apostle is dealing with here. The penalty has been executed upon all men. How can that be? Because all men have sinned in that first sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. In that solidarity with him, his transgression has brought all of this upon us. Death spread to all men because all have sinned in Adam. There is an important phrase at the end of verse 14 that we should look at. And Paul says there, Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. What a blessed statement that is. Because Adam, Adam is not the end of the story. And when God created Adam, God created him looking forward to another one who would come. If Adam was the only man, the only representative, then we would have no hope. But thanks be to God, Adam was only a type. He was only a foreshadowing. He was a man who was created to look ahead to the greater one who would come to be the savior and rescue us from all that Adam would bring upon us. What God pictured, what God intended in Adam was fulfilled in Christ. Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. He is a type of Christ who was to come. The early church fathers would speak of three ways in which Adam was a type of Christ and Christ the antitype. The first way was that Adam was formed out of the virgin ground of the earth in the creation when the Lord formed him out of the dust of the ground. But Christ, he was formed out of the Virgin Mary in regard to his human nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. A second way is that Adam, he disobeyed God's law, but Christ obeyed all of God's law. Adam disobeyed in a perfect garden, but Christ obeyed in the wilderness when he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted by the devil, the world had become a barren wilderness wasteland by Adam and Christ obeyed in that wilderness of this world. And he continued to obey through all of his life. And the third way in which Adam is a type, Christ is the anti-type, is that they both accomplished what they did on a tree. Adam brought sin into the world 
at a tree when he ate from the forbidden fruit. Christ brought salvation into the world on a tree where he died under the curse of God to bring salvation to us. So this idea that we read of here of representation, it is not new in the Bible. We find representation in the Old Testament when the high priest would enter into the holy place and he would have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his shoulders, on the stones, and he would represent them before God. And the same thing takes place with Christ here. He is our representative in all of these ways. When David came out to fight Goliath, what really was going on there? David against Goliath. Two men, two men, two champions from the armies that they represented. Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. David, the champion of the Israelites. The two men represented their armies. David killed Goliath with a stone from his sling. So all the Israelites could go home in victory. And the same thing has happened with us, with Jesus, our great champion. He has come and accomplished righteousness, justice, justification, so that we all have victory through him as our great representative. So we close our time this morning with several applications. And the first is that the New Testament affirms the authenticity of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall into sin. In verse 12, Paul speaks of the one man, Adam, who, by whom sin entered into the world and death through sin. What Paul is doing throughout the passage is he is looking back to the account of Genesis chapter 3 and he is affirming to us that it is literal historical events in history that took place. He continues to speak of Adam down through the rest of the passage. And he continues to speak of Jesus Christ. His entire argument is based upon the historical figure of the first man and death, the penalty that came to him in the Garden of Eden. So Genesis chapters 1 through 3, it is not mythological. It cannot be viewed by any logical, reasonable Christian as a figurative account. It is actual history. And the Bible is accurate, even in this regard, and any other view would destroy the apostles' argument throughout the passage. A second thing that we can say is that the grace, of, the grace and the gift of God to us should humble us and make us abundantly thankful. Because in Adam, as we were born into the world, what were we? We were guilty, we were condemned to death and perishing. That's what we all were. Then came the day of our salvation. Then came the day when the gospel came to us and the light of the truth for the first time dawned upon us. And we could see Jesus in the scriptures as the Savior. 
And what happened on that day? We were taken out of our union with Adam. We were placed into the union with Christ. And righteousness was freely given to us and justification and eternal life. And there is nothing that we could have ever done to make that happen. There is nothing that we could have ever done to accomplish that. It all came to us by the free gift and grace of God alone. And the only thing, the only thing that makes any one of us to differ is the grace and the free gift of God to us as sinners. We were like men condemned in a prison cell and sentenced to death and doomed and we were covered in our guilt. And God came and put new robes upon us and the judge loved those perfect robes, pronounced a new sentence and we were set free and we were given righteousness and eternal life. It all comes to us by the grace of God. And how thankful and how humble we should be that we, lost and guilty sinners that we are by nature, should be rescued by such a marvelous salvation. There is nothing that we have contributed to it whatsoever. And it is not by no goodness that was ever foreseen in any of us. It was not by any works of righteousness that we had done or would do. It was by grace and by grace alone that we have been saved. Adam had great power to destroy us. Jesus has infinite power to rescue us and to bring us into his kingdom. In Christ we have guilt, in Adam we have righteousness. So I close my time this morning with a word to any who do not know Jesus as the Savior. In this passage, you have a description of what you are this morning in the sight of God. Whether you realize it or not, if you are in Adam, then you are under guilt and you are under condemnation and you are under the sentence of death. And in that family of Adam, you can find no salvation there. And you can never work your way out of that family by your own good deeds. There is another family. There is another family that is headed by Jesus Christ. And in that family, there is righteousness for all. There is free justification. There is eternal life for all who are in that family. And so the question is, how do you come out of that family of Adam and into the family of Christ? Jesus invites you to come. And if you come to him, turning from your sin and looking to him by faith, he will freely give you righteousness and he will freely give you all the blessings of his eternal kingdom. Weary yourself no more with your human efforts and with your good works. A simple look to Jesus in the gospel is all you need 
and you will be saved. Let us pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, O Lord, what can we say? We marvel at the most amazing way in which you save lost sinners. And we can hardly even begin to understand how great the work of Jesus Christ has been for us. We ask that you would open our eyes to behold more of his glory. We pray that you would teach us great and wonderful things about him and help us to rejoice, to be thankful, help us to realize we have done nothing to accomplish all of this. We are lost, but he has found us by his grace. Lord Jesus, bestow your mercy upon sinners this day who hear your word here. We pray that the light of the truth would come to them. We pray that they would flee from that guilt of Adam and find righteousness in your beloved son. O Lord, thank you for this great salvation. Hear us and bless your word to us now throughout the day. In Jesus' name, amen.